Konigstein Road in the east to Casitas Gap in the west, and the orange curtain is descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hello, I'm Brett Bradigan, editor of Ojai's Magazines, the quarterly and monthly. One of the primary purposes of these publications are to preserve the very important cultural memories that have distinguished this community over the years. One of those key moments in our history is the Hollywood Blacklist era in the 50s and 60s, in which several of those Hollywood 10 blacklisted writers, Michael Wilson, Dalton Trumbo, Paul Jericho, and others, found in Ohio a sanctuary from the political storms and backlash they endured. Our guest this week to talk about this is Mark Lewis, former chairman of the Ojai Valley Museum and contributing editor of Ojai Quarterly. He is also one of the finest journalists with whom it's been my pleasure to work. Hey Mark, thanks for joining me. You bet, Brett. Glad to be here. Yeah, so this is an important cultural story for Ojai about Hollywood and the blacklist and the refuse that these writers and directors found in our smiling bale so i thought i'd have you on and we can talk about that i think the story you did back in 2013 one of my favorite stories of all time I've, because you've written many of them but this one in particular hits a lot of the notes of what ohio all about so um tell me you know how how that all came about the story yeah well um i guess the First little uh, seed of it was, uh, I did a story for you actually, a profile of Robert Brown, the actor. And uh, part of his story, which I didn't really get into much, was... Robert he, Brown of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Uh, that was a movie, but uh, it, a TV show stole the theme, and it was called... With Bobby uh, Sherman. Here Come the Brides. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Bobby Sherman and David Soul and uh, Robert was the older brother, and they had a bunch of trees and... They were loggers. Anyway, um, Robert uh, told me uh, that he had a brush with the blacklist. He wouldn't sign a loyalty oath. He was not a, a card-carrying party member, but he uh, it, it retarded his career. Anyway, I didn't really address that in that story so much. There's so much else to uh, Robert's story than that. Uh, but that was uh, the first thing. And then, um, but Robert also told me he was friends with Jeff Lawson. And the uh, not... Uh, Jeff is the son, still lives in Ohio, as far as I know, uh, and he is uh, the son of Jack Lawson, John Howard Lawson, who was, in fact, the uh, head of the uh, clandestine Hollywood branch of the uh, Communist Party USA in the, uh, from the late 30s, 30s and 40s, and uh, uh, he was the leader of the Hollywood 10. Okay, now... I get confused between the Hollywood 10 and the Hollywood 19. Well, uh, they started out as the Hollywood 19, the HUAC, which was the House Un-American Activities Committee, uh, had decided to... Um, and that started up in 46? Well, uh, that Or there was some, some portion of it. Uh, it was an existing committee that got revitalized after World War II. Yeah, actually, uh, one of the many ironies, there's always ironies, uh, HUAC was founded in the 30s, uh, under a slightly different name, uh, to investigate Nazi sympathizers in the U.S. Yeah. And, and the co congressman who was the main guy pushing for it was, in fact, a Soviet agent. <laughs> oh, it's oh a, really? Who oh, yes. I forget his name, uh, but it's it's out there in the history books. Uh, More uh, than a sympathizer, he was he an, was an agent. agent. Yeah, I'm not even sure he was an actual communist, but he was taking money from the Soviets, and he was a congressman, and he was the guy pushing for the committee. I don't think he actually got managed to get on it. Anyway, so by 1947, uh, Nazi Germany, of course, was in ashes, and, things, and now the Cold War has started. So the committee is still there, but it's repurposed, and most of yeah. all the congressmen on it were uh, uh, very so do, conservative. Do people date the, the beginning of the Cold War to Churchill's speech in the University of Missouri with a... The Iron Curtain has uh, fallen the, across. The, in, a, in a formal kind of announcement sense, sure. If you're a, a historians look at uh, uh, other things, I mean, it started really with Even the fall. before World War II. Well, uh, there was anti-communist, uh, yes, there were certainly uh, people, I think there was a California uh, legislative committee in the late 40s that was uh, 
kind of like a California version of HUAC, uh, and it uh, didn't have as much publicity, and it didn't, I don't think, get as much traction. But uh, but the Cold War, that was definitely followed World War Two. It was uh, a fallout of the uh, falling out of the uh, victors, you might say, and the uh, Stalin. Uh, uh, occupied essentially Eastern Europe, which he conquered, re- conquered or reconquered, uh, and wasn't going to give it up. Poland, in particular, but then uh, they had a, uh, fomented a, a coup in Czechoslovakia. So there were there were in um, Hungary as well. Hungary well, I was fifty six when they uh, shut that down. But they were anyway. It was essentially uh, uh, w- within months after the end of World War Two, this was beginning to kick into gear as the two main victors. Uh, the U.S. and, and uh, Soviet the Union. The bipolar world. Yeah, yeah. So by 47, uh, HUAC is, uh, has decided to take a look at Hollywood. And, uh, well, they were looking at communists in general, uh, hunting for reds, and there were reds. A to red find. under every bed. A red under every bed, exactly. But they, so they, for reasons I forget, they decided to take a look at Hollywood because, of course, there's the idea that propaganda and fifth columnists and yeah. so forth. So they came and they, they the reason they were they found identified nineteen uh, people that they had decided uh, were communists and they were actually well actually I'm going to amend that a little because it was originally the Hollywood Twenty and I don't want people to forget about that the twentieth okay. being Bertolt Brecht. Well, uh, if, okay, I don't remember the exact where, what yeah. number he well, was. Well, I just remember that really fun story. Well, I don't know if it's a fun story. It's amusing. It is a story amusing. about yeah. Bertolt Brecht going before Huac, and he all he wanted to do was write. So he wasn't going to get hoist on, you know, the martyr's banner. Yeah. He charmed the committee chair, smoked the same kind of cigars, wore the same kind of suit. Uh, and interestingly, whenever they'd point at some obvious, you know, communist sympathizing dialogue in one of his plays or film scripts, he would pretend like, oh, I, you know, oh, that's the trend. Oh, I wrote that in German and the translator must have right, mistaken right. that. And everything, it was just so impossible to pin him down. Right. By the time that he finished his testimony, the chairman was so taken with him that he offered to sign his uh, exit visa and mm. get him on his way back to Germany where he well yeah he went so that left 19 yeah well he immediately 19. he immediately uh, went Re- to East Germany Brecht Brecht was the uh, I don't know actually how to pronounce it is it Brecht or Brecht I've always heard Brecht Brecht's good enough for me uh, yeah he he did what the Americans wouldn't do which prevaricate and get, and get the heck out of course they couldn't well, they couldn't. Yeah, they, they, wanted, they didn't want to go to Eastern. They, they wanted, wanted to, to make and, a stand. On, yeah. Unless we stand, we can do no other. Also, they thought they would win on various grounds. They were uh, sadly mistaken. The reason the 19... So, the HUAC, again, they didn't... Later in the Blacklist era, things broadened, especially after McCarthy uh, started playing a role, which he hadn't yet at this point. Yeah, well, um, he was in the Senate. He was in, in the 46. Senate. Forty-six, he got elected. I think Senate so, but Wisconsin. he hadn't. He hadn't made a name for himself as an anti-communist. But by that time, in the early fifties, it had broadened to where they were going after not just who uh, so much as a, a general cohort of uh, red baiters was going after uh, suspected fellow leftist fellow travelers. In other words, they broadened and it, it, it brought a whole bunch of people that weren't actually uh, uh, communist party members at all. Still got their careers ruined. But uh, Huac was trying to go by the book because there certainly there were communists and they were so the Hollywood nineteen they identified nineteen they weren't all uh, that was one reason it became the ten uh, because they were wrong about one or two of the uh, second nine you might say uh, plus Brecht um, so after they interview, after they uh, grilled the first ten uh, all of whom were in fact uh, card-carrying Communist Party members. Or, or form erstwhile. Well, a couple of them said they'd left. It's hard to tell because no one, there's no official but thing. So during the time, the late 20s and early 30s, when capitalism seemed imperiled because of its you know, inequalities and everything else going on, that naturally the people who sympathized with the working man were drawn towards Communist Party. And then, you know, we didn't really know about Stalin's Tragedies well, and everything in the twenties and early thirties. 
More to the third. The show trials in the thirty-seven. That's when it should have became clear to any thinking person that Stalin was a monster. Should have, but didn't. Um, yeah, in the thirties. But again, if you look at it, the, the total numbers are not huge. To say that any reasonable, idealistic person had no choice to, but to become a member of the Communist oh, Party in the thirties. No, no, you, you don't. But somebody, choice, but they would. because you could have voted for Franklin Roosevelt yeah, or the socialist guy. Did, yeah. Uh, yeah. So so anyway, but but I'm not saying these were bad people, but they were. Communist Party members, they weren't falsely accused in that sense. Uh, and some of the card carrying, card carrying. Well, they were, of course, they didn't carry it, but the FBI had broken into uh, uh, communist uh, headquarters in somewhere in LA and actually had pictures of their cards, <laughs> membership roles. Uh, so yeah, so they anyway, they were all in fact what Huac said they were. Question: They would say, "Well, so so what? So what? We have a perfect yeah, right. It's perfect. It's legal. We haven't among other things. tried to overthrow the government violently yeah. or anything. No, although they, they would not necessarily have objected. I mean, these were these were committed people. You didn't casually join the and just a few party. of these names, if you don't. Uh, oh, sure. Well, anyway, the, the first uh, the first one, the leader was Jack Lawson. So after ten, the committee figured they had and Brecht, they figured that they had they'd made their point and they they didn't call the remaining. Uh, nine or however so that's why the hollywood 19 uh became the hollywood 10 because those 10 all took the first amendment uh say we don't we have a right or pleaded the fifth amendment no that that was later they, this was oh, their mistake just they thought they could get by by saying i have a right under the first amendment not to say what you, anything to you uh and they ultimately lost on appeal and it's still as far as i know the law no no, no law has ever been no made on the idea that you, if you're subpoenaed by a congressional committee, you can just tell them, I don't want to talk to you. Uh, so they, they all went to jail ultimately for a year for uh, contempt of Congress, not for being communist, which again was not illegal. Never became illegal. They never did ban the party. It still exists. Uh, anyway, so the 10, Jack Lawson was the leader. And he, uh, they all and what made. What was his role? What, what, he, what did he have in the title or a he, organizational uh, with the party, foundation? Uh, I think he was. I don't know if they actually had a title, but he was the recognized leader of uh, of the uh, Hollywood branch. There was a branch because they, they the uh, commenter did see the they did pursue yeah, Hollywood. They, they saw yeah, potential, the potential there cultural for, uh, value and yeah, uh, and, and potential working some anti-capitalistic uh, screeds into the these yeah. plays. And yeah, they well, they were very big on film as a as a, a means of advancing their ideas. So um, uh, anyway, so Jack was the I don't again I don't know if he had a title, but he was the head of the the party in Hollywood, which was half of which were screenwriters, um, and they were heavily represented in, in the tent. There was like uh, one, two directors. Uh, some, some of the names, uh, uh, Dalton Trumbo was at that time the Hollywood highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood. Very successful. Uh, Ring Lardner Jr., very successful. Um, and uh, Now, Ring Lardner Jr., what's the relationship with the uh, boxing uh, journalist and uh, know, the demi-monde... Uh, that's Ring Lardner Sr. Like uh, you can look it up. Those those short stories. Uh, that was his father. So Junior. With all those great names, and wasn't that where um, Nathan Detroit and no, that was Damon Runyon. Damon Runyon. Never. But mind. they're but they're both yeah, similar milieu uh, sports writers and with literary uh, credentials. Anyway, so uh, who else? Uh, duh, 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 duh. Um, Paul Jericho. Paul Jericho was uh, among them. No, no. Paul was not in the top ten. He would have been in the... Uh, Hollywood 19. Yeah, he, he eventually got... that. Michael Wilson was not. He, we'll, he'll be, we'll be talking about him. He was not in the ten. Um, but but uh, the, the most significant name at the time, uh, in terms of fame, was Trumbo. And uh, the leader was Lawson. And they were both very, they were all successful Hollywood yeah. uh, professionals. And they were working right up until... No actors. Uh, no, no actors in this in this uh, 10. Uh, there were some actors that got uh, caught up in the second and third waves. Uh, some were members, some weren't, but... Uh, the well, thank got God the uh, Screen Actors Guild had such a strong, uh, they supported their members so, so vehemently. Well, uh, well, actually, you that's can, a little snark there. A little snark there. You would, uh, yeah, you're referring, of course, to Ronald Reagan, who was a uh, New Deal Democrat at the time. But uh, he, you know, there, there are, 
it was a legitimate argument, I'll put it that way, between people like Reagan and people like Lawson. And the communists did work very hard to uh, run things if they could in, in terms of Hollywood unions. And, and uh, the, we look back at this, especially if you're uh, in a kind of a, a, from the liberal side going left, as uh, there's the left and here's these, these right-wing uh, ideologues. Ideologues, and, the, uh, and, they, and they certainly were. Witch hunters. So, but if you're, if you're, the fight between, for example, Reagan and Lawson was not, was over who's going to control the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, and that's not an illegitimate, it's not like Reagan was wrong, I would say. And again, at the time, he was a liberal Democrat. This was possibly what started well, pushing him to the right. Yeah. Anyway, this, 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 these arguments can uh, go on and on, but uh, I guess just we want to probably get to OHIVE, so I'll uh, skip ahead. So the 10 uh, failed on their appeal, took about three years. In 1950, they all went to jail for uh, refusing to testify for one year for uh, contempt of Congress, and at that point, the blacklist kicks in. The, the, the studios had to wait until... The, the the ten lost because before they could get sued for uh, yeah for uh, getting it, shutting them out yeah and they, they were valuable trumbo I mean they didn't want to not hire these people but they also didn't want to be uh, uh, boycotted by the American Legion and so forth uh, so once the ten lost their appeal that's when the blacklist starts that's and this is nineteen fifty fifty and then it, it it broadened and you had people that weren't necessarily uh, card-carrying members, and this is the point at which uh, Michael Wilson, who we'll talk about, uh, he had just won an Oscar for writing A Place in the Sun, and uh, his name came up. With Montgomery Clift and... And Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, in that white dress. But we digress. Um, so uh, Wilson had just won the Oscar and been nominated for another one. He's blacklisted. And they, fought, they, they kept thinking they were going to win in the courts, and they, they generally speaking, didn't. They, Wilson actually, I think, won a little money for uh, in terms of a specific contract that had been broken. And, and, but mostly, they just they had to disappear into the shadows, and uh, they, they, their careers were over, except insofar as they could figure out how to, they were talking about the writers, uh, how to... Um, Work through work. various nom de plumes right. or nom de guerres. Right, they needed beards and fronts. And yeah. Of course, first they made one movie the way they wanted to make it, which was Salt of the Earth. This is yeah. '53, but it uh, it was a big. It's a very interesting film because they used a lot of non-actors, yeah. and it was based on mostly real events. It was like a con conflation of two or three mine strikes in uh, Western New Mexico and Eastern Arizona, Copper Phelps Dodge Copper Mine. There was a silver mine in Silver City, New Mexico. So it was an age with a lot of turmoil. A great, great subject. People haven't seen that movie. It's it holds up pretty well. I haven't seen it myself, but uh, and it did. Uh, it'll actually figure in our narrative later because it. We'll get around to it. But that was '53. It, it was uh, basically this distribution of the U.S. was blocked. It was a success, the esteem in Europe. They got won awards and so forth, but uh, people in the U.S. didn't see it. But it was overtly also, you know, they could finally make the movie they wanted to make, and they got yeah. some money from, the, uh, among other places, the Communist Party. Uh, so they made the film they wanted to make, and uh, but that was it. And that was, the, it didn't, you know, you couldn't keep making films that, that no one put, could pay to see, so they all disappeared into the, uh, some actually went abroad, Trumbo went to Mexico. Uh, Mike Wilson eventually, and Jericho both went to Paris eventually with their spouses, which is part of the story. Uh, so they all they all go into the uh, and start writing under assumed names, and you know having to not take nearly as much money as they should get. And, and they splitting were it. they were uh, also writing for these grindhouse type cinema mm. factories, really low budget uh, kind of horror movies and things that uh, some of them, yeah, and depending on you know there were there was different levels of quality, of course, among these yeah. you know, some of them weren't so uh, auteurishly great going in, and they didn't emerge any better when the blacklist finally faded. but uh, uh, some of them did really fine work that didn't get didn't get credit for it until the blacklist era ended, for example, Mike Wilson co-wrote, uh, and Carl, Carl Foreman, another blacklisty, co-wrote um, 
Bridge, Bridge on the River, River Kwai. Kwai. And uh, it won an Oscar for the screenplay. Anyway, they didn't, they couldn't, they, uh, Hollywood by this time had figured out a way, it had managed to, to establish its right not to uh, nominate credit people for, because uh, they kept nominating these films. Everyone knew uh, who, who had actually written, written them, or, them. Uh, regardless of, them. of whatever the, the name was. That... So, but but uh, for Bridge, uh, they gave the Oscar to the guy uh, who had written the book on which it was based, who, had nothing, who didn't even speak English. It was Pierre yeah. Boulle or something. Yeah, and, Pierre Boulle. And uh, Wilson also co-wrote, a couple of years later, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. These are among the great films of their era, but his name wasn't on that. Uh, what finally happened, Trumbo got nominated for a couple of Oscars that Johnny got, got Johnny got it. No, that was a novel. That, he, that wasn't nominated. And that was after the Blacklist. After the Blacklist. Well, he, he was nominated in the 50s, or rather films he wrote were nominated, but other people won the Oscars. And years later, he would he was given, the, I think it was posthumous, actually, but he was, he was granted credit for that stuff. Anyway, uh, but finally, uh, the Cold War continued, of course, until... 89, but the, the blacklist era started ending in the 60s, 60, because Dalton Trumbo started getting credit. Uh, now, there's some backstory to that, too, right? Wasn't it uh, Michael Douglas, or no, Kirk Douglas, who yeah, started Kirk. to push from the uh, inside against the studio heads, too? Well, he was actually, it was, it was outside, he was actually saying things like, I'll, you know, get I'll credit. hire these guys. But yeah, it was too, it was, uh, Kirk Douglas insisted that Trumbo get credit for, uh, Spartacus. Spartacus. And the same time... No, you got to pronounce it properly. Spartacus. Spartacus. And at the same time... I'm Spartacus. No. Uh, I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. At the same time, uh, uh, at the same year, Otto Preminger uh, insisted that he get credit for Exodus. So that was the end of the blacklist for Wait Trump a minute. Trumbo. Trumbo. Trumbo wrote Exodus and... I mean... Yes, the same year. Spartacus. Wow. 1960? 60s when they were, movies were released. Uh, or anyway, that's when the, his this is public. So that's yeah. the end of the blacklist for Dalton Trumbo. And but not without a lot of squawking and fuss and, oh, you know, well, these, until, uh, in these fifth columnists, uh, yeah. you know, are back at it again. And Well, it didn't, it didn't really take anymore. Like I said, the, the Cold War was not nearly over, but the, the hysteria of the 50s uh, had died down uh, quite a bit. And all this, yeah. it took another couple of years for everyone else. I mean, Trumbo... Pushed through a hole through it, and then uh, others a uh, climbed through. So by '64, and then we finally are about to get to yes, oh hi. Uh, by '64, Michael Wilson too is about to start getting screen credit. Uh, he and uh, Trumbo co-wrote a uh, vehicle for Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton called *The Sandpiper*, which is oh, not uh, really a, such a great, a great movie. movie. Based on a Lincoln. Stephen story or something wasn't it set up in uh, Monterey or it was set Big, Sur, Big Sur Big Sur I just saw it on Turner Classic Movies the other uh, week. how's it hold up uh, I, yeah not it wasn't as bad as I thought because I've always heard it was supposed to be a, a terrible movie uh, it, it, it wasn't terrible it's just it, you it's had just a movie people love to hate well you, you got these uh, now middle-aged guys like Wilson and Trump are trying they're writing about they have Liz Taylor as an incipient hippie and she just doesn't mm, get a man. Well, she would have been, yeah, they, she's a 65, so hippies, were, they, the word didn't even exist, but she's a bohemian beatnik type, and it's a little hard to... to uh, uh, it's a bit of a stretch. And uh, it's, it's not terrible. I wouldn't say it's terrible, but it was it was uh, not uh, considered a success not, at who's the Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, no, if you no, will? Absolutely not. So... Um, in fact, that same year, Burton made uh, Spy Who Came In From The Coal, which is Terrific, but uh, but this was not uh, amongst to the To bring finest. it all back to Ojai again. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Ojai. Well, I'm, I was making a Jean Lecaire Le reference. There. Oh, yeah, That's yeah, exactly. Well, well um, um, so so Wilson um, decides, it's, okay, we can go home. His, his, his two daughters, uh, Becca and, and Rosanna. And he was in Paris, and he was married to Zelma. This Wilson. is why, yes. And this is now we really do finally, finally get to Ohio. His wife, Zelma Wilson, uh, and fellow communist uh, idealists and so forth, uh, she was a would-be architect. She had to, she lost that job due to the blacklist fallout. And they, but they all now, they go to for Paris. Just a little background about her. She was a very prominent female architect in an age when there were very few. But didn't she... 
grow up or born and raised in Santa Paula? She was born in New York, but she grew up and was raised in Santa Paula, right, with her sister Sylvia. Their mother had a, a, get a dress shop. So that's why when the Mike when Mike and Selma want to come back to the U.S. in '64, their daughters want to go to high school in America, among other things. Um, they both ended up at Nordoff. One one was a homecoming princess, and I think the other edited the school paper. Anyway, uh, Selma knew all about Ohio because she'd grown up in Santa, Santa Paula. She played tennis in the Ohio as a junior tournament. Uh, so because they wanted a place that wasn't in Hollywood but was near enough. So that to Mike where you could can work make your meetings and yeah, and talk to people. So Ohio, and they got a, bought a house on Del Norte, and they moved here in '64. And uh, as a result, because they were a gregarious, uh, fun, and interesting uh, yeah. couple, and Selma was the hostess with the mostest in this set. Uh, she kept the they, salon. She kept, yeah, their house became a meeting place, and other people started moving here. So, well, visiting, kind of, as Ohio's a great place to visit. So people yeah. would visit, their friends would visit. Their friends were, uh, many of them, former communists. Most of them were former communists by now, after uh, Khrushchev denounced uh, Stalin's crimes. And nobody, the scales fell from their eyes, belatedly. So, um, but they're not. Right wingers, of course. No, there's there's still all sympathizers. Yeah. Well, at that time, there was a lot of flipping of polarities, reversing, like former Reagan. communist sympathizers, like Reagan, but also Mike. Norman uh, Podhoritz and Midge Dechter that started. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah human the, events. The, or, the, the transition from far like, left to far right is not yeah. Uncommon. It's easier for the poles to flip like that for true believers than Some it people. is for yeah. Yeah, but these the 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 Wilson crowd. Uh, no, they were still <clears throat> people yeah. of the left. They just weren't, card, you know, Communist Party members anymore. And they they went back to work in Hollywood. And you had people, uh, Dalton Trumbo, for example, owned a ranch in, in the Ohio backcountry up in Lockwood Valley. I mean, it's a hard, it's a long drive to get to Ohio from there, but nonetheless, kind of in the area. But this was an exile of just a little over ten years. Well, the blacklist went from forty-seven to. 60, but it, it took a couple of years to completely and utterly fall for, for everybody. Uh, and it never did fall for Jack Lawson, but then he was... He, was he one, never renounced He never uh, renounced. In fact, he went and lived in the Soviet Union for a couple of years. Um, so he, he remained... remained a true, Harvey Oswald. He remained a true blue... Um, a uh, true believer. true believer, a, a card-carrying member, not with a card, actually, until he died. Um, so he did not, uh, there was no end of the blacklist for him, but he, he, there were jobs and colleges and books to write. So that's what he did. And when did he move to Ohio? He never moved. His son. Oh, Jeff lost. Jeff. Jeff moved to Ohio. Um, but so, so first is you have the Wilsons on Don Norte, people are coming to visit them. Then, uh, almost immediately their friend Jeff Corey, who was never a communist, but had fallen victim of the blacklist, the actor, uh, people who... Uh, listen to this, well, many of them will remember. They knew the Wilsons, they knew the Corys. Hope Corey was his wife, and they eventually uh, brought their daughters up here, I think. And, and Jeff was, was a, uh, he had become an acting coach when he couldn't work as an actor on screen, and he was a very, very successful acting coach. And he continued to do that, but he also started working on screen again in 64, made some money, bought a house on Foothill, came up, you know. So this more and more would come. Um, Eventually, Paul Jericho. But the nucleus was uh, the Wilson, Michael Wilson, and Zelma. And Wilson. Zelma, meanwhile, had belatedly uh, become what she had always wanted to be, which is a very successful and talented architect. And she who did, built many of the iconic buildings in town, including City Hall. Well, she didn't. She she repurposed the, the, repurposed it. But yeah. she built. She designed uh, Meditation Mount. She designed uh, Ohio Valley Athletic Club. And also, interestingly, the community center for Miravalli or Miravalli uh, Trailer Park, oh, really? which uh, the very distinctive curved oak beams that what? radiate outward I, from you can tell I Zelma Wilson building from from a long ways off. I don't know that anybody over there really understands that they have such a cultural treasure. I, I yeah. didn't even know that they had it, so I certainly uh, am among the ignorant there. Anyway, yeah, she made a big mark on Ohio uh, and managed to finally get the career she'd, she'd wanted all along. Um, and she was also the uh, center of this social 
seen, uh, which included many ex-blacks listees, and a lot of them finally would move here, and their kids would move here. I mean, they would be visited, by example, for example, by Waldo Salt, and Waldo's, one of his daughters later moved here. Yaruka. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. No, no, or Deborah, I think it was. Um, her sister Jennifer was an actress for a while. Um, and, of course, uh, Dalton from the Trumbos would come and visit, and Dalton's son, Chris, who I think he knew. Who I know, and his wife, Nancy. I know Nancy. I never, I never met Chris. He at last passed away. But he was, uh, he, and after the Wilsons were no more, uh, Chris and Nancy in their place on McAndrew, that became the new salon for like the second generation, you yeah. might say. Uh, with one exception, though, uh, Jeff Lawson had moved to uh, Ohio in, I think, the uh, early 80s. Um, and one of the people that moved here was Tyba Wilner and her husband, George. George had been a, uh, they were both communists, but George had been a, a screenwriter's agent who specialized in, uh, there were two, apparently. Uh, so you had a choice of two if you were, uh, if you wanted to have an agent who was your, your who shared your political beliefs. Political um, bedfellows. So George, they, George and Tyba bought a house on Patricia Court. Uh, George died, I think, earlier than Tyba, and, but, uh, um, she apparently was here a long time, and she and Jeff moved here because he actually had gone to Ohio Valley School in the 30s when a lot of uh, left screenwriters, including communists like Ring, like uh, Ring Lardner Jr. Yeah, but who was the uh, David Ogden Stewart was another one. Mm -hmm. uh, he was he won an Oscar for Philadelphia Story. He was a party member. His kid and Jeff were friends at the Ohio Valley School. In the 30s. But interesting that they would send their kids to a English-style boarding school. Well, it was very progressive. Ohio Valley oh, School yeah, was very was, progressive. Okay. Um, unlike, <clears throat> well, I mean, there weren't perhaps that many. It was close to Hollywood. So, uh, yeah, anyway, you had, Jeff remembered Ohio fondly from his childhood, and he wanted to raise his son in a place that he thought was a better. Anyway, for whatever reason, Jeff moved here. But he wasn't really part of the Zelma Wilson crowd. Or later, the uh, Chris Trumbo, Nancy Escher crap. Uh, in part because he had serious father issues. Uh, he had, had conflicts with his father, uh, who he also in many ways admired. Um, yeah, complicated. So, complicated, yeah, these things can be. So, uh, But Jeff's been here a long time, and he's, he's still here, uh, as far as I know. And I, he's been working for decades on his memoirs. I don't know if he's going to, is on the verge of finishing or not. But he is still here, and uh, the last one, I mean, friends and so forth, and, and widows are here and there. Paul, I think Paul Jericho's widow. So still, we still live here. in that, um, the sh maybe not the shadow, but we live within the cultural influence of the blacklist in Ohio, and I feel that uh, a sort of openness and refuge and haven and, and as people were seeking that, that was a big, uh, well, yeah, big draw. The attraction of Ojai is yeah, not just the astonishing natural beauty, but the cultural milieu. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it, and we also remember there was a um, what they called the gray list, which uh, you you still worked. You weren't necessarily a party member, or somehow you had, yeah. but you were you fell under the shadow. And that, for example, Floyd Crosby, the great cinematographer. Uh, yeah, father of won David for, won his Oscar for High Noon, I believe. Uh, I can't remember, but that sounds right. But he um, never stopped working. But he he had to wind up working for like Roger Corman. I don't know how much he minded. Oh my God! Everybody has worked for Roger Corman. One degree of Roger Corman. I think that would be the game to play. And uh, Elmer Bernstein, the great uh, film yeah. uh, mute, mute, uh, scorer composer. He also kept working, but had a. Now dip. that's Leonard's uh, brother, right? I actually don't know. I don't know about that. I shouldn't say that because I don't know either. I assume they're related, but they may not be, just because they share the same last name and yeah. they had a you know parallel uh, you know a lot of overlap in there. Well, he had a dip in his career, but he said he kept working, and it, I think it yeah right it up dipped, until didn't, didn't last all that long or something. Yeah. So there, there, uh, and again, I mentioned Jeff Corey. Uh, in other words, you didn't have to be a card carrier. By by the later in the blacklist era, the, the brush had broadened to all kinds of people who were not necessarily uh, fellow travelers. Well, they were many fellow. They were fellow travelers, but they weren't card carrying members. They didn't hadn't uh, done anything that even the ones who could truthfully he, answer in the negative. Have not 
or never. Are you now, or have you ever been Absolutely. a member of the Communist Party? Yeah, but a lot of them, of course, got swept up eventually. The Hollywood Ten, they were all actual communists, or or had been. But uh, beyond that, of course, the uh, as the hysteria starts kicking in, um, it, it became a, a lot of. We're talking hundreds and hundreds, not not millions, of course. But nonetheless, lives were blighted, careers were ruined. A couple people. Like John Garfield of, died of a heart attack, which may be yeah, hard. He was to, like thirty-nine years old. Yeah, and he had. Uh, it's hard to say why someone dies of a heart attack, but it's, you, one can speculate that his the pressure stress. he was under yeah. uh, contributed to that. So, a lot of bad stuff happened. Clearly, well, there's another a bit of a stretch, but another connection to the other side of the blacklist, which was uh, Elia Kazan. Do you know his Ohio connection? Uh, his wife. Uh, was a th uh, had Molly somebody Thatcher Molly Day Thatcher Molly Day Thatcher she was not an Ojai person but she was uh, distantly related to our Thatcher yeah I should do a two degrees of Ojai about it mm -hmm. along on the waterfront or something to try to tie that back to Ojai because you can he named names oh yeah well he's, his point of view was uh, he had long since turned on the party and it, it's certainly legitimate to dislike communism and he thought he said, "Why? Why? I'm supposed to give up my career for these people I can't stand, who are mean to me in in some sense because you know there were there were oh they, he wasn't pure enough. Wasn't well, enough. there's never yeah there was a lot of that, and and Jack Lawson was often the one who was trying to enforce the uh, the purity. Or there was this guy named V.J. Jerome who was the, the in New York who was the American Party's kind of commissar for cultural toe the line, but towing the line was you know a big part of." Being a communist, I mean, you, they had a serious program. They were very serious about this is what it's going to take. We're more organized than namby-pamby liberals. The, you know, we, we're, we're going to uh, get it done. Yeah, I wonder what the parallels are to, you know, they, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, victim victimhood on the right, that they're the victims of cancel culture. Mm -hmm. But it seems like the left is more likely to eat its own. Well, the, yeah, I would say... That, that leads to uh, another, yeah, it is another irony. Nowadays, um, socialism, not communism with a capital C, is certainly uh, very uh, on an upswing, especially culturally uh, in America, I would say, but also politically. And uh, it's not, you know, the, on the right, they're, they're once again trying to red bait. I don't think uh, outside of the right's base, I don't think it gets any traction at all because the Cold so. War is over. So the... Uh, even though we're the boogeyman is back in the yeah. closet. Well, even though we're all, you know, the country's kind of now freaking out about China, which is in fact run by a communist party, but no one thinks it's communist because they've embraced Not capitalism. Philosophically, uh, it's an authoritarian regime. Yeah, but it is technically the communist party. Same yeah. thing in Vietnam; they too have embraced capitalism, but no democracy. And well, I understand. I don't know where I read this that the distinctions between say, Russian communism and Chinese communism, and what we see today with the Communist Party controlling all the apparatus of the economy and everything else is directly influenced by their... Well, I shouldn't say directly influenced. It is influenced by Confucianism and the hierarchical structures that Confucius... Uh, you know, put in I'm, place that were adopted. I'm sure. Yeah, I, 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 I that's why it, you know the revering your elders and and uh, know your place and well, don't be a dopey a nail that sticks out. Yeah, um, yeah. It's uh, back to the, the American. Uh, what's going on politically now? It is, I think, uh, ironic uh, that uh, the left that that is uh, resurgent. I would say now. Um, especially millennials and Gen Z in the future. And you know, a lot of this, you see the, an exaggerated version of this on campuses, but the, the, the attitude towards free speech is different than, there was an article just the other day about there's a big controversy in the American Civil Liberties Union between the older guard, which did things like defend Nazis. Yeah, the Skokie, in, Illinois, in order uh, to Nazi defend, march. In, in order to defend everybody. 
Uh, yeah. That was the point. I certainly uh, I joined the ACLU because they did that all those years ago, just to support yeah, them. Because of what uh, Voltaire said, I disagree with what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. Yeah, but the, the those new, days are gone. The, the new young, well, they're not gone until the new generation takes over. But the new generation, yeah, they have a whole different view of it, which is that speech is bad speech that they disapprove of. Hate speech yeah, is a form of violence and should not be allowed. Form of violence, yeah. There was a scary stat about Gen Z or I think it was college students, something like 57% said that speech that, that people found offensive should be banned. Yeah, and you see... And whoever uh, decides it's offensive... And I, I, exactly. have, I struggle with that because I see that emerges from kindness and uh, looking out for everybody, but it easily gets demagogued into social, a form of social control. Well, you see, uh, for example, uh, this, is, this stuff erupts every once or twice a month now, is that uh, uh, rank-and-file employees of major New York publishers rise up and say, no, we don't want you to publish a book by Mike Pence. Cancel it, you know, and half the time, some of the because the publishers yeah. have to respond to it. it, yeah, it I'm is not a too new worried view about that because there's some, there's, yeah, someone else get published. Up, yeah. yeah, but it's if the generation, the irony again, yeah, and they, they the points are can be made for you know it's, it's a it's a different way to look at free speech. I just I disagree with it, but it may become the the, the ascendant version. But it is uh, inconsistent with the defenses that were made fifty years ago. For the Hollywood Ten, which was not that communism is right, but that people have a right to, to be wrong. To to be wrong. In fact, there's there's a quote I can share. Let me find a page yeah. from Mike Wilson, which is kind of a, a oh, and Michael Wilson gave one of the most beautiful speeches in defense of right. uh, freedom. So freedom how, of speech and freedom of the press when he. Picked up an honorary Oscar in 1980 or 76, something. 76, and let me quote it right here. Uh, and the, the interesting thing is, how would these words fall uh, among, I don't know, cap, campus activists uh, now? But what he said was, he warned, he warned his listeners that one day, quote, a new crisis of belief will grip this republic when diversity of opinion will be labeled disloyalty. If this gloomy scenario should come to pass... I trust that you younger men and women will shelter the mavericks and dissenters in your ranks and protect their right to work. Uh, the guilds, he's talking to the writers, screenwriters guild, will have need of rebels and heretics if it is to survive as a union of free writers. This nation will have a need of them if it is to survive as an open society. Well, uh, that's not necessarily the, the popular view on the left nowadays, among yeah, the younger people. But he was talking about, uh, yes. you know, the... Uh uh, the right-wing tendency towards uh, conformity and authoritarianism. Oh, yeah. he, he did not see this this coming necessarily, although yeah. uh, you know it wouldn't be inconsistent. I don't know. One reason I don't worry too much about it is the Twitter mob isn't representative of any widespread opinion and that people will start pushing back against that. But for me, the perfect example is the 2009 financial crisis and the resultant political outrages on both sides. You know, the occupation of Zuccotti, what's it, Zuccotti Park? And oh, the, Lower Oc East. the Occupy Wall Street movement. Yeah. Like, yeah, well, that was big, you know, the 1% one, going after the 1%. But meanwhile, the Tea Party elected 40 members of Congress in 2010. Yeah. 40, which is the biggest ideological chunk of the Republican caucus. Uh -huh. And how many Occupy Wall Street people got elected to Congress? I forget. Somewhere between zero and zero point zero. Yeah, zero, zero, zero. But uh, things do evolve, and now you have the squad, and there'll, there'll be more. The squad, added. I don't think, uh, is being organized around the Occupy Wall Street movement. Oh, no. In the same way the Tea no, Party but, caucus was. No, but there is, uh, and I'm not saying this is even a bad thing. I mean, there, but there are now... There's a cohort of younger, openly socialist, democratic socialists of America, uh, people including AOC and so not all of the squad, but several. Um, and there remains to be seen if they will fade like the Tea Party or, or become part of a wave. Or they'll be assimilated, as often happens with these movements, once they realize that the levers of power require a conscientious and diligent 
uh, you know, methodical actual work of showing up, well, then things change. You know, people are supposed to be fiery and outraged when they're young, and then I know they take that fire and passion and actually put it to work on the levers of power. They can't just. You know, I think one thing I see with both the right and the left, especially the left, though, is that there's this idea, our plan, first thing we're going to do is we're going to get everyone outraged and we're going to show all these inequalities and we're going to get people fired up. And then B, I don't know, and then part C, people are going to rise up and take over the levers of power. There's that middle part. Nobody seems to really have a plan for that, an actual well, then they just think that's going to happen. It's funny if you, uh, or sad, depending on your point of view, but uh, I mean, the, the millennials and Gen Z, of course, can't stand us boomers uh, because we're, we have failed. Okay, boomers. Okay, boomers. Yes, because we have uh, screwed up the world. And, and yeah, we have left it. a mess, that's for sure. But. Well, but, it, but what's, what's, right, but we're the generation, not me personally. Uh, well, I went to a few protests against the war when I was really young. <laughs> But we were the generation of the 60s, right? And what happened, we just, you, it's not just uh, that you make some decision and, oh, well, I guess I won't be trying to save the world anymore. You just get older and uh, it wears off um, for good or ill. Well, it's um, because you bumps up against reality. Well, anyway, so that's that always happens. But uh, it may be, nonetheless, you know, things do change. It may be that America will finally have a, a real European-style uh, left Social party, not, not just the Democrats, but a socialist party. Uh, it may not, you know, right now, no, but but there, there's uh, a lot of uh, enthusiasm on the left and uh, alas, well, whether on the far it translates right. into any electoral success, that's the that yeah. remains to be seen. I think they've made a lot of uh, progress in the short they've time. They've moved the Overton window. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's certainly... For people don't know, the Overton window would be the range of socially acceptable discourse. You know, what would be considered uh, outlandish idea like Medicare for all, you know, 10 years ago. Now, thanks to Bernie Sanders. Reparations the, for slavery. All these things, all these things are now on the table. They're on the table, and they weren't. And the same on the right, recently. you know, the... Trump blew open the Overton window on the other side. Yeah, well, it's a interesting times, as the old curse. Uh, yeah, I wonder how you live in interesting I, times. I don't know. I take, you know, my politics are informed by my experience to some extent. But you know, I'm a small business owner. I pay too much in taxes. I've spent six years in the military. I love guns, but. You know, I'm a progressive. I feel very much aligned with the FDR tradition. and But what I love about FDR and that people overlook is, you know, he put it back on the people. He, in every instance, it was all up to the organizers. And he had a great uh, anecdote about his uh, meeting with uh, Walter Reuther and uh, United Auto Workers and some other labor leaders after he was elected, before he was inaugurated sometime in the early part of 1932 or 1933. And, you know, they laid out their, their agenda and he said, I agree with you. I want to do it. And then they're about to get up and he goes, no, no, no. But now you got to go out there and make me. And I think people forget about that part, that if you want this change, you can't just uh, wave it. You tell us, you know, see the mayor in uh, line at the grocery store and say, oh, I got a pothole in front of my road. Could you, you know, take care of it? It doesn't work like that. You got to show up. You got to petitions. You got to do the committee work. All the boring stuff that goes into the actual sausage grinding of democracy. Well, among other people, Jack Lawson would have agreed with you because that was the, uh, <laughs> the party's approach in Hollywood. They were the ones that uh, they joined every committee and they were the last ones there hours later. And then they could iron butts. Then they, they could uh, dominate the vote. Uh, but they did, you know, it wasn't like before the war, they were leading uh, a lot of Hollywood committees to uh, combat uh, Nazism. So it's not, you know, it's not like they, uh, they were out there trying to do evil or anything like that. Yeah. But, uh, um, and, they, and they also didn't have an opportunity, of course, but what was going on in the Soviet Union, uh, uh, something different. But uh, Hollywood ending, we can provide uh, for the individuals at least, uh, uh, because all these, uh, especially uh, just address the Ojai folks, I mean, uh, after the blacklist, which is roughly uh, 
10 to 15 years, depending on who you were. Um, Michael Wilson comes home and he, uh, alas, died young of a heart attack. Before he did that, he wrote... Well, I don't think he was that young, right? Wasn't he in his 70s? No, 60s. Uh, but uh, he, relatively young, hey, I'm in my 60s. Yeah, if I die of a heart too. attack, I Goodness. will regret that I didn't live a full life. But um, he wrote on Del Norte Road, as a matter of fact. Uh, Just he, up from the cemetery. He wrote uh, Planet of the Apes. And... Uh, Dalton Trumbo uh, wrote, uh, what, the, what was his big, uh, Johnny well, Got Your Gun. No, Johnny but that was not a big hit, but he directed his, his own script of his, of his own novel. But yeah, so he, he, he went back to working. Uh, uh, Ring Lardner Jr. wrote MASH and won an Oscar. Waldo Salt oh, won Oscars wow. for Midnight Cowboy and Coming Home. I mean... A lot oh, of some of these were guys, very different kind of movies. These are the auteur-driven movies, and this was the period studio. So these guys, movie. these guys before they died, or long before they died, depending on what, how they lived, were lionized. The Hollywood of the late '60s on, and to, still to this day, was, was lionized uh, folks that they uh, especially saw as oppressed by the right leftists uh, or sort of liberals to be, and they they were ushered to the front ranks and honored, and uh, they, um, they they had a Hollywood ending, many of them. They were redeemed. They got their redemption. More than redeemed, yeah. They, again, not all. Lionized. Not all. And even Jack Lawson, he, had, he couldn't write movies anymore, but he wrote a lot of books and lectured at, in universities. You know, he got, he got to say, make his piece, make his, uh, say his piece, uh, and then recraft it and say it again. I mean, he liked writing Books on film theory, and he wrote several, and he made now, a career. Now, this. how much of their uh, of the blacklist being eroded was sort of the erosion of the studio system that allowed more independent voices? Well, I think uh, it's more parallel. The studio system, you know, it, so no one could make a centralized decision anymore, like they had in the in the with Harry Cohn, well, Jack Warner. Um, yeah, they 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 got together and decided, all right, we're it's nineteen. Was it Harry Cohn was Columbia? Columbia, yeah. That wasn't... Uh, well, that was a good story about his funeral that... They wanted to make sure was, he was dead. <laughs> well, yeah, that <but laughs> wonder why, why so many people showed up. They all hated this guy. And then he says, well, they just want to make sure he's dead. Yeah. A fierce fellow, Harry Cohn. Yeah, well, the studio system had, had bit, pretty much bit the dust, uh, as you point out. So, But the studio heads were not ideologically driven to, you know, they're all about making Box money. They, they did not want to not hire Dalton Trumbo. They, they, that's why they turned a blind eye to the front system. You know, it wasn't in their interest to, to, to reject scripts. To have the flow of, top of writers, product yeah. coming their way, especially because the supply studio, chain. In fact, if the studio system hadn't died, I'm just, just occurs to me, or wasn't dying as it was then, they, they might've made it a lot harder for people like Trumbo and Wilson to write, under pseudonyms because they, they uh, would have been less desperate for the, the quality of their product. So I don't know. But uh, certainly by the uh, 70s, um, if, you're, if you had a, a life story that fit into the uh, oppressed by the blacklist, you, you were, that, that was cachet. Uh, certainly not, yeah. not if you it was like a badge names. of honor. Whereas if you name names... Like Ilya Kazan. Yeah, well, he... he uh, uh, yeah, when, when they decided to give him... This is much more recently. What was it, 10, 15 years ago? Uh, yeah. Still uh, some butt-hurt uh, people no, out there. Yeah, was they decided to give him a Lifetime Achievement Award. I forget who. Maybe it was uh, the Oscars. I don't know. He was still alive, so it must have been more than 20 years ago. But uh, it was a huge controversy. Now, does his career merit that? Of course. Ilya Kazan, my God. But yeah, there was a great deal of pushback. I think they gave it to him anyway, but uh, it was they a huge did. controversy. Because um, as always, you know, there's not something about uh, naming names. I remember once uh, when I was in like ninth grade, a, a school administrator put a great deal of pressure under me because uh, he caught me sneaking off campus at lunchtime to uh, smoke a cigarette, probably the last cigarette I ever smoked, with two friends. And uh, the friends got away or something, and I didn't. And, I was not a strong, backbone, used to trouble kind of kid. So he put as me you are pressure. now, hard bitten. Arr. <clears throat> I won't name a name. You can't pressure me. But I named my friends' names, and they, and I, I to this day uh, shrivel at the thought of having ever done that. 
they they didn't seem to mind. We weren't getting in serious trouble, but nonetheless, yeah, but the act. So there's something about that 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 endures. Again, why should Ely Kazan, apart from the shame of having named names, why would he? Uh, why, he didn't like communism, or he didn't like communists. He didn't wanted to. He, why should he give up his career? Because yeah. you're not supposed to name names, and this translates beyond politics. It's not something that is. Oh yeah, stool pigeons and. Uh, yeah, thus, thus, on, thus on the waterfront, because yeah. the, the guy who wrote it was uh, also named names. Um, was the guy, and he wrote uh, what makes Sammy run? What's his name? Oh, Sammy Glick. That was the guy, the the, the hero, the or the anti-hero yeah. of the book, but. Uh, uh, what was his name? Sam somebody? Anyway, he wrote the script and Kazan directed it, and it's a, a great classic, but it was all about trying to shrug off, because, you know, Terry Malloy, played by uh, Brando, names names to, uh, to uh, and, and it's he's reluctant to, because you're not supposed to do that. But in the end, of course, he's fighting the mob, as opposed to, uh, you know, yeah. some political... I thing. guess it depends on the names that you're naming. But there is definitely a, a cultural cost oh, for yeah. being a snitch. And if Snitches two, get stitches. And if my two friends from ninth grade are listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> the I, pressure. Oh, you don't God. Even know. I'm so ashamed. I, I, I still, yes, I still feel ashamed for having done that. Nobody got in trouble, but you don't name names if you could possibly, yeah. unless they're, you know, sticking something under your fingernails or something. Well, that's one I was getting uh, top secret clearance or something, one of those trainings. And, and they said it's best that n knowledge be compartmentalized to where you can name names all day long. It isn't going to mm. disrupt the, uh, the operation. It's just you have your compartment of knowledge, and there's only maybe one person who's safe, safely away from the front who's going to have the big picture. A lot of the uh, blacklist ease, uh or the people threatened by it try to sidestep it by naming names that are already been named. Oh yeah, uh, which, or even making up some names or pointing to some of their uh, enemies. Well, well, that's yeah, that's a different thing and a horrible thing, worse even. But uh, yeah, they were all kinds of things. They were the the, the famous uh, quote from the actor Larry Parks, who had just finally become a big success uh, in a movie called Jolson. Uh, this the out the Jolson story. Larry Parks played Jolson. This is like forty-seven, and uh, he, it's a big hit. And he's finally on his way. Larry Parks is an actor, and he, he was a, had been a or was still a, a car a fellow traveler. Member. No, he was a, a member. Um, so they got him in the net, not in the ten, but the next batch. And he he, uh, he said, "Don't make me crawl through the mud on my belly to betray my friends." I've I was a communist. I admit it. I, I'm not now. It's it, it was a mistake. Youthful indiscretion. But don't make me because you already have the names. Don't make me. That was his quote. Yeah. Crawl through my the mud on my belly to betray my friends. But they insisted, and he, he named names and spent the rest of his life uh, in shame. In, well, certainly his. I don't know how he felt, but his friend, his former friends, never forgave him. And his even career, though they'd already been named, and his career was ruined anyway. So yeah. his wife was uh, Betty Garrett. Her career didn't get ruined, thank goodness. She was a terrific actress. Betty who? Betty Garrett. Uh, oh, well, you'd, you'd recognize if you saw her. She wasn't a huge star, but she was very successful, and she bounced back. But he didn't. I don't, I'm not sure why. Yeah, I think the cultural detritus of the 50s and the Blacklist era is still with us in many ways. The, the Crucible, for example, how you can take... Uh, I mean, Arthur Miller, Arthur Miller. Did a magnificent yeah. job with yeah. creating those parallels between, you know, this. I'm reading a great book now called The Delusion of Crowds, which is basically an update of Charles McKay's 1841 book, uh, you know, Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. Mm -hmm. And he really goes into, like, the Millerites and the end days and how people get more strongly invested in their opinions, you know, with a confirmation bias and everything else that goes on. And it's just such a, a flaw of human nature. And you can see that from like evolutionary psychology, that this ability to stick to a certain conception of reality when you're a hunter gatherer 
has so much value. But when the world gets scaled up so immensely as it is now, uh, we end up with all these kind of weirdnesses and quirks and, and QAnon and Pizza Gate. You know, oh my goodness gracious. Yes. All right, Mark. Well, I think we've covered the waterfront, so to speak. <laughs> you might say, yes. <laughs> Anything else going on? Anything you want to talk about? What are you working on now? Anything fun? Uh, well, I don't know. What's, what's, what's my deadline again for the next <laughs> issue? I'll come up with something by then. I think we have talked about a few stories, but whatever it is, it's going to be great. Everybody, you bet. Everybody knows that. You bet. All right, Mark, uh, I'll let you go. Thank you for your time. And... Uh, We'll see you around the campus. Thanks for having me. Just thinking out loud. It's always a good conversation with Mark, who is such a diligent and conscientious chronicler of Ojai. We hope to have him on again soon to talk about his research that shows the many parallels between Thornton Wilder's Our Town and Our Town of Ojai from when Wilder was a student at Thatcher School. But given our talk this week about the current wave of polarized politics in America and the perils of woke culture and QAnon conspiracies and all the other cultural stew of weirdness, I will offer up a reading recommendation called The Delusion of Crowds, subtitled Why People Go Mad in Groups by the author William J. Bernstein, which delves deep into the psychological changes that come over people when they are in the grip of a shared delusions, which has led to many tragedies and catastrophes. Also, for a quick fact check, Ojai's Elmer Bernstein is not related to Leonard Bernstein, though they were peers and close friends. So that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.